The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Last week we looked at uh, God's purposes in trials. Have you noticed you have had trials in your life since you've been a Christian, that things haven't been always hunky-dunky? Uh, God says he has a purpose in those trials. And the purpose, if you remember, I should quiz you on this, but you remember it's that, first of all, it reveals the real nature of your faith, the real status of your faith, where it's at, the strength of your, or weakness of your faith when you go through a trial. You see the truth. Sometimes that's the hardest part of the trial. And secondly, it refines your faith, like refining gold. He refines it through the heat of trials. And then finally, he grows your faith. You mature through trials. And that's his ultimate goal, is to have you come to be someone who has a very strong faith in the glorious God that we serve. We sometimes sing a song called, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's a, it's, and uh, the second verse, it says this. I sent this to somebody yesterday because it was so powerful to me. It says, those he saves are his delight. And most people, when they hear that, they go, how can that possibly be? Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Now, what that song's about is the fact that Jesus Christ is in charge of your sanctification. He's actually in charge of your Christian life. It's because of his love for you, his commitment to you, that he's going to work in your life, including trials. Trials are not evidence that God has forgotten you. Trials are evidence that God is really at work in your life, and he has real purposes behind these trials that you're facing. Now, let's read in James. I'm going to read the first eight verses, if you would please follow along in James chapter 1. We looked at the first four verses last week. We're going to look at verses 5 through 8, actually, this week. Listen to what he says. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. They had been scattered because of persecution. He's talking about the Christian Jews who have been driven out of Jerusalem and scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And then he says in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. He's writing to people who are having a really hard time. And so he says to them, Consider it all joy. Thoughtfully uh, account these trials that you are going through as joyful because God is accomplishing something. It doesn't mean they're not painful. It means that God knows what he's doing. He goes on, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, anybody who reads that would have to say, I really want that. I would like to be, as a Christian, I'd like to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's talking about in our Christian living. He goes on, but if any of you lacks wisdom, now he's going to tell us how we are to respond to trials in order for us to experience the blessings that God has in mind for the trials that we go through. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, that is, you don't know how to respond to this trial, he says, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, 
The word doubting means self-disputing. You ever get in an argument with yourself? I used to know a guy that would uh, audibly argue with himself. He would call himself self. (laughs) He says, but he must ask in, in faith without doubting, without disputing himself. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man, the conflicted man, the two-souled man, ought not to expect anything, to receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded, quite literally two-souled man, unstable in all of his ways. In verses 2 through 4, we've been told that we should embrace trials as opportunities for spiritual growth. I know you would rather go to a class and take a class on spiritual growth than to have to go through trials to grow, but this is God's plan. This is God's purpose in trials. And then in verses 5 through 8, he's saying, pray for wisdom that you need in order to grow through these trials. Any disciple who reads James 1.4, that you would be mature and complete, not lacking anything, You would want that. I want that for my life. I want to be a mature believer. I want God to empower me to live in such a way that I could demonstrate what it's like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Would it be something to be able to say like Paul, follow me as I follow Christ? Because most of the time we'd like to say, don't follow me. I'm not not quite there yet, but you can follow so-and-so. But Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And yet in in times of trouble, we find ourselves to be such fools at at times. You know what the solution is? Fools need wisdom. To be foolish is to lack wisdom. And as most of you parents and grandparents know, in in Proverbs 22, 15, uh, Solomon wrote, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Now he says more than that, but that's all I want to quote. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. In other words, there needs to be growth in wisdom. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. A person comes to faith in Christ, they need to learn how to walk with Christ. And part of that comes through the experience of trials. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is more than knowledge. You've met people who know a whole lot of stuff, but they don't live like it. Wisdom is knowing how to apply truth to everyday life. The fact that Jesus loves you, that that verse I just read out of, he will hold me fast. He loves those that he has saved. So you know that he loves you. Well, how should that change your life? That he actually wants to hear from you? That he likes the sound of your voice when you come to him? That he's, he's actually for you? That's wisdom. When we start living according to wisdom, we're living according to the implications of the truth that God has given us in his word. You know, I want to say something. I want you to know that I believe the Bible, I believe that the Bible is the word of God. And that this is where we find truth. God has given us truth here. The word of God is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and reproof, that is telling us when we're wrong, and correction, telling us how to get right and instruction in righteousness, how to live our Christian life. This is our source. I heard a guy say that, uh, this was in a crazy place, it was on YouTube. He was saying, he was saying I, I noticed the title of it, it said, 
the Bible, the, the, the Holy Spirit is not a Bible, and the Bible is not the Holy Spirit. So I wanted to hear what he said. What he said was, when Jesus spoke to his disciples in the upper room, and he said to them, I'm going to send you another helper, that is the Holy Spirit. And he's going to lead you into all the truth. He's going to cause you to remember everything I said to you, and he's going to show you things to come. And he said, you see, it's not the Bible that you need, it's the Spirit that you need. Let me tell you what Jesus was saying to his apostles. He was saying, the Spirit's going to come and empower you in such a way that you'll remember everything I taught. For example, uh, 60 years after Jesus said it, the Apostle John tells the story of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles when he said, he, he spoke very loudly and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John comments. John now is 90 years old, and he comments on Jesus' words. Now, 60 years after Jesus said it, John heard it 60 years before this, before he wrote it. And he remembers it because the Spirit of God brought it to his mind. And he wrote down, he was talking about the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given because Christ had not yet been glorified. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't it be great when you turn 90 that you could remember what somebody said to you when you were 30? That'd be great, wouldn't it? And that's, that's what happened with supernatural, the Spirit of God showing him. So Jesus was talking about the Word of God, that he was going to empower his disciples. For example, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the life story of Jesus, and they tell it in detail because the Spirit empowered them to write it down. And the result is, has been handed down to us is this book with 66 different books in it that make up our Bible. And it's truth. We have absolute confidence that this is truth. When you're going to look for truth, this is the place to look. What does the Word of God say? So, for example, in Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews said, the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and lays us bare before him. And you know what fillet means? You ever fillet a fish? Well, that's that, what that word's talking about. It, the word of God fillets us before God, and we are exposed to him. Lays us bare before him to whom we must give an account. Now, the wonderful thing is, is God lays us bare, but we get to see what's in there too. We get to see what God is seeing. He opens our eyes to the truth about us. And so we're able to turn to him in desperation and call out on him to deliver us. Are you as mature as you ought to be for the time that you've been saved? You know, you remember the writer of Hebrews said, for the time you've been following Christ, you ought to be teachers. But someone needs to teach you the first principles all over again. So we have this tendency not to grow. But here's the key. It's the word of God. It's the word of God that brings maturity and growth. It's coming to understand the word of God so that you can teach others. It doesn't mean necessarily in a classroom. How about teaching your own children, teaching your friends? That is just explaining what the Bible has said and what it means in a given situation. That's wisdom, knowing how to apply truth to our lives. And so God's word says, in, your, in the midst of your trial, if you lack wisdom, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. What do we, well, so what do we do? When we don't know what to do, what do we do? We 
ask God for wisdom. Simple, huh? And James assures us that he will give it to us because of who he is. He is it's, this is a wonderful expression. I told you last week, this is like a title of God. He is the giving to all men generously and not reproaching God. He gives us what we need when we ask for it. He wants to hear our voice. He loves for us to come to him and ask because he wants to give us what we need. And so when I'm in the midst of a trial and I don't know what to do, which I have been before, what he tells me to do is to ask God for wisdom. Now, there's three things here he says we need. We need to ask God for wisdom. We need to have a united heart so that we can ask with, in faith. Do some of you remember in, in the book of Psalm where David prays, Lord, unite my heart that I might fear you? What does that imply? It implies you can have a divided heart. You know what a divided heart is? Where you love something and you hate it too. You want to, but you don't want to. Was it like this in your family when you were growing up, as your parents would tell you what you said when you were a little kid, and they would say it in front of all kinds of adults, and they would all laugh and think it was very funny? Well, the thing that my parents always said that I said, which I think is totally apocryphal, is... uh, they said when I was started talking, one of the first things I said was, I want to, but I don't want to. Well, I don't know if I said that, but I've felt that way many times, haven't you? Where you, you, know, you want to do what God's called you to do, but you want to do something else, too. You have an overriding desire to be disobedient to him. And this is why when, when Paul wrote these words, the, the spirit lusts against the flesh, and the flesh lusts against the spirit. What is he saying? He's saying that in our heart, the spirit of God has come to live in every believer, but every believer also has a fallen nature. It's called the, we are, when we are walking according to that, we're, called, we're said to be walking according to the flesh. And the flesh is selfishness. That's the nature of this, the flesh. It's selfishness. I'm looking out for myself. You know, there's, there's things I want for myself. And if I, don't, if, I, if I give to you, if I do good to you, I can't do for me. You've had those kind of situations where in order to help somebody, you had to give up doing what you desired to do. And so we have these opposing desires. And, and Paul says, the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit so that we cannot do what we desire. In other words, you have to not do one of those things you desire in order to do the other one. And so for me to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit is what God is training us to do. But if I say no to the spirit and yes to the flesh, I'm going to experience what Paul describes in Romans 7, great disappointment. In fact, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, I end up doing the thing I hate and not doing the thing I love because of this, because we're giving into the flesh. Well, God's made provision for that. But what he's saying here is that when I pray for wisdom, my heart has to be united. He's not going to answer my prayers if I'm divided. If I come to him and I don't really have faith, that is, I don't have trust in him to do for me what I really need and what he wants. He says, your prayers won't be answered. Somebody has said, um, I think it was George McDonald who said, that God will carry us before we can walk. 
and he'll, he'll carry us when we can't walk at certain times in our life, but he won't carry us if we refuse to walk. And that's really true, isn't it? Oh, he's going to help you. He's going to enable you. He's going to empower you. But you have to come to him in faith. You have to have such confidence in God that you know that what he gives, how he responds to your prayers, are going to be exactly what you need. And so we ask in faith. We come to him believing. It's interesting in this passage, in verse 7 and 8, it describes a person who lives with this deep division we were talking about. So we first of all have to acknowledge the fact that we have this need. That's why he says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Think about that a second. If any of you lacks wisdom. I don't remember the last time I ever said to somebody, you know, I got a real challenge in my life, and and I, I lack God's wisdom. I don't know what to do. We usually hate to admit that that I lack the wisdom of God in this situation. And what, I'm, what the problem is, I have to come to the place where I acknowledge my need for the wisdom of God. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, in other words, if I recognize my lack of the wisdom of God, and sometimes it's the kind of trials that everybody feels so bad about what you're going through, and nobody's saying to you, well, what is the Lord telling you you should do? What, what do you see in the word that you're supposed to respond to this? Instead, we simply lavish concern on them, and we pray for them. But one of the things that must happen, I have to come to the place where I ask for wisdom. Now listen to this. This is Job 28. Job has a question, and then there's an answer. And here's the question. Where can wisdom be found? Where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? He goes on, man does not know its value nor is it found in the land of the living. In other words, all my friends, remember his friends, his three friends? They didn't have wisdom of God. And he says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not in me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it. You can't buy it. Nor can silver be weighed at it as its price. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears, we have heard a report of it, but we don't know where it is. So how do I get wisdom? Well, here's the answer he gives us in verse 23 of of Job 28. He says, God understands its way, and he knows its place. Have you ever decided, you ever felt like you needed something really bad, but you had no idea how to get it? You didn't know where you could possibly get it? That's how wisdom is in the midst of trials. I need God's wisdom in this situation, but where is it? God knows where it's at, and God is able to give it to you. But can you see that you have to come to the place where you totally and completely trust him in order to even ask for it? Um, you remember in, in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, I'm sure somebody here has read Pilgrim's Progress. If nobody's read it, you need to start reading Pilgrim's Progress. Um, but in, in Pilgrim's Progress, there's a character, and his name is Mr. Facing Both Ways. <laughs> you can see that? He's going in two directions at once. I want to, but I don't want to. 
Or I like this even better. Augustine, if you've read the life of Augustine, you probably haven't, but if you had, he was a guy that had some real moral problems before he came to faith in Christ. He was very immoral. He had had, he, his sex was his life drive. That's all he wanted. And so when he prayed, once he came to faith, and he prayed, he said he started praying to God, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. So he was bifurcating. I want it, but I don't want it. And that's how we do. We, we, uh, we need wisdom from God, but we have to come to the place where we want it, even if God's going to give us wisdom that goes against what we desire. Jesus prayed on the, on the, in the garden, remember, before the cross, and he said, if there's any way this, this cup can pass from me, this cup of your wrath, if there's any way it can pass from me, and then he stopped right in the middle of the sentence. It's, it's stunning in the, in the original language. It's like he's saying this, and he just stops, and then he says, not my will, your will be done. You have to come to that place. I want God's wisdom. I want him to open my eyes to his wisdom in this situation. It's, it's just a fact that there are times when we, uh, we're going through a trial and we don't realize that this is one of the greatest opportunities in all of life. This, God is going to open a door for me in this situation that I'm not even aware of. And I'm going to see God work in a situation that I've longed to ask him for. I've longed to see him work. But it's taken this, it's taken this trial to get me to the place where I turn to him and ask him for wisdom. Solomon said in Proverbs 2 that the Lord gives wisdom. In fact, I love this. Jesus said, do not be afraid, little flock. He's talking to his disciples, his apostles. He says, do not be afraid, little flock. Your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Now, what he means by that, God takes delight in giving you this. He takes delight in giving to his children. That's a stunning thing, and it's hard to learn that. It's, it's so easy to not come to grips with this truth that God delights in giving. In fact, later on in this first chapter, in James, in verse 17, he says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In other words, it is his nature to give in this way. I don't think we ever think of that. We, we actually think prayer is to break down God's resistance. Maybe if I ask him 122 times in a row, I could get him to stop resisting, giving me what I need. No, you don't understand. God wants to give to you, but he wants you to come to the place where you ask him in faith that you trust him. That's all it means. To ask in faith means to ask him because you trust him. Not only can he do what you need, but he wants to do what you need. He wants to give you exactly what you really need. And he gives with pure motives. You know what mercy means? Mercy means, grace means God's unmerited favor, we typically define it. God's unmerited favor, him giving himself to us even though we don't deserve it. But mercy means treating a person this way. You give them what they need, not what they deserve. I watched this. 
I watched this video on uh, YouTube the other day. By, it's called a Homeless Preacher. I probably mentioned this already because I read it a couple weeks ago. But this guy was a, was a law student at Berkeley, and it was his last year, four-year program, his last year, UC Berkeley, with, for a degree in law. And he read a verse in the Bible where Jesus said, if anyone asks you, give it to them. And it stunned him, and he started doing this. In fact, his wife got so upset with him, she left him because he started living like this. He started, if somebody approached him and said, do you think you could do this for me? He would do it. Now, that's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, all these people, these panhandlers and stuff, you know they don't deserve it. And yet he read that and he said, I don't want to violate this commandment of Jesus. I don't want to take the chance of violating it. So when someone would ask him, he would give it. And pretty soon he's all alone. His wife has left him. He's lost his apartment. And then he decides that God wants him to preach to homeless people. Well, I saw this interview. A, a, a news person was interviewing him and he said, aren't you taking advantage of a lot? He goes, Yes because I've put myself in a place to be taken advantage of. That's what Jesus led me to do, to make myself vulnerable. All that to say, you don't have to twist God's arm. He gladly desires to give you the kingdom. In other words, the idea of that is he generously gives. He enjoys giving. You know anybody like that? You know, when you think of Jesus, the reputation of Jesus, the reputation of God, that God gives generously and does not upbraid, do you know that you can't bankrupt God? Did you know that you could never ask too much from him? Now, you may ask something really silly. Maybe you're like one of these guys on TV that asks him for a a jetliner and then tells all the people listening, you need to send me money so I can get this gift from God that I have to pay for. But God wants to give to you exactly what you need. And guess what you need in the midst of a trial? You need wisdom. You need wisdom. All that means is, how do I apply the gospel to this situation? I can remember Steve Fernandez when he got a, he had a brain tumor. He died from it. And uh, when he got this, his father had died from a brain tumor. And when Steve, this it became clear he had this, and they told him they couldn't do surgery on it because of where it was located. So me and another guy went and had lunch with him and uh, talked to him. We wanted to pray for him. We wanted to go to his house and pray for him. He says, okay, but I want to tell you something. I don't want you to pray for my healing. Pray that God would be glorified in whatever he does in my life. That's all I want. I just want God to be glorified in this. So that's what we prayed. God be glorified in this. And if it's through healing, glorify yourself by healing him. And if it's taking him home, then glorify yourself by taking him home. You can actually go on YouTube and see his last sermon. Yeah, it's called something like the gospel in, brain, in a brain tumor. Some crazy thing like that. Or the grace of God in a brain tumor. A brain tumor in the gospel, something like that. But, and, and it was just amazing. I watched this thing, and, and I could see him, because I'd known him for years, and that's how he lived. I want God to be glorified. That's all I want. I just want God to be glorified. Do you know that God is glorified by giving you what you need as a believer who asks him and then gives him credit for it? That you praise him 
because he has given you exactly what you need. And think of this. You're in a trial, and I'm not going to mention any specific trials, but we have people in this church right now going through trials even that I don't even know about. I know because we're vulnerable to it. And what he's telling us we have to do is to ask God for wisdom from a unified heart, from an undivided heart, that I trust God so much I entrust myself to him and I say, Father, please give me the wisdom I need to face this trial in a way that would glorify your son and glorify you. And the God who gives to all men generously and does not upbraid will give it to you, James says. Now remember, James grew up in the same house with Jesus. He didn't know he was the son of God in those early days. He came to understand it and put his faith in Christ after the resurrection of Christ. But he understood, and that's what he's writing about, that I can ask the God who gives to all generously and does not upbraid, and he will give it to me. So if I need wisdom in the midst of a trial, I can ask God, and I have this guarantee that he will give it to me. He'll give me what I need. He'll give me the wisdom that I need to face this trial. To live out this trial in a way that would glorify God. What would you pay for that? Is that valuable for God to give you the wisdom you need to walk through the trial that you're facing? Oh, yeah. You know, just to, to actually know. Sometimes you get in the midst of trials and you're just you're pulling your hair out. You can't figure out what am I supposed to do? I've had that question many times when people will say, what is God doing? Why is he allowing this? Well, what he wants to do is to give you the wisdom to live through this trial in a way that will glorify him. And so he wants you to ask for wisdom. Now, we have to be undivided as Psalm 86.11, where David prays and says, Unite my heart that I might fear your name. Um, I, have to, I, have to have a, I have to have an undivided heart. Because a two-souled person is simply describing you this way. When you have opposing desires, I'm sure this has happened to you. This is what Romans 7 describes. Those times when you know what God wants you to do in a situation... And you desire to please God, but you also desire to fulfill some sinful desire that is in opposition to that. And so you struggle. What am I going to do? Am I going to obey God? Am I going to walk in his wisdom? Or am I going to give in to my fleshly desire, my selfishness? Now, what, it, what, what James is saying is, oh, you have to be one-souled. Now, the soul is that part of the inner person that the, the Bible describes as that part of us that has desires and has and experiences life, the feeling of life. And when you have this two-souled attitude, it's being, it's being driven by two opposing desires. What am I going to do? It's interesting, in Paul's writing, he, there's a, an order that he talks about the, in the Christian life. He says, what it starts with is uh, moods, the moods of the flesh. The moods of the flesh arise because we're walking with God and we begin to have these, these doubts about whether God is really giving me what is best. 
And just a moment, if I could just have a very short, maybe just one day of disobedience, I could get what I really need that God doesn't understand. And so these moods set in. And I feel like I've got to have this. If I don't have it, I'm going to be unhappy the rest of my life. And then he says, after the moods, out of the moods comes the, the, the desire or the lust. So the mood sets in. I feel this sense of need, what I want and need I don't have. And then in the midst of that is the lusts of the flesh, which are those overriding desires. The Greek word for lust is epithumia. Now, thumia sounds like it, it, it sounds like it means, it means heat. And epi means the center. You know what an epicenter is of an earthquake? That's where it shakes the most. That's where the center of it is. Well, epithumia or lust is my overriding desire. What do I desire most at this moment? A moment of pleasure, like uh, Paul talks about in um, Ephesians 5.18. He says, don't be getting drunk with wine. Because that's dissipation. Why would you want to get drunk with wine? Because it meets, it fulfills a desire. I'd like to be a little bit out of my mind for a little while. So I don't have to think and feel about what's going on in my life. That's not the wisdom of God. He says that's dissipation. So he says don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God be the one who makes you full and complete. So, so Paul says in the Christian life, what happens is we're going along, and all of a sudden we experience the mood, a mood of the flesh, which means I feel like I need something that I don't have. And then the lust of the flesh is the answer to that mood. I need somebody that God has, I need something that God has told me I, I should stay away from. And then the sin. In fact, in the book of James, we're going to see how he describes this process of of temptation. And what it feels like when you actually say yes to sin is, oh, this is going to solve my problem. But what it really does is it casts you into an impossible situation, destructive situation. You know, like somebody trying to get off of drugs or alcohol and 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 you find out they're really struggling to do it, but the pressure becomes too much and they turn back to it. Why is that? Because they feel this deep, profound need, and they turn back to the very thing that has thrown them into this situation. That's the flesh. That's the work of the flesh. So when we're, when we're going through trials, we're looking for answers. If I'm feeling like I can't stand this much longer, what's the solution? And so what happens is the flesh provides solutions. But what, what James is saying, no, you have to have a unified heart. You have to, have, you have to be one-souled and ask God for wisdom, and he'll give you the wisdom that you need to get through this trial in a way that glorifies him and is good for you. See, that's how God is. God longs to give you what you need. Over the years, I've uh, always thought, this way I illustrate this to myself, it's like there are people who will tell you, they'll give you all kinds of advice on what you should do. Somebody told me, you want to have a happy retired life? This is what you have to do. You have to put a, get a million dollars. And once you have a million dollars, you can retire and enjoy your retirement. 
Well, it's really funny. I know, I know guys who have millions of dollars, and they're not happy in their retirement. That can't be the answer. There's got to be something else that doesn't. What I need is only what, what God, only God can give me. I need his wisdom. And you and your trial, whatever it is, the trial that you're going through right now or you're about to go through or you just got out of, what you need is you need a single heart and to ask God for wisdom, and he'll give you the wisdom. And the wisdom of God applied to life will bring you through the trial, and it will produce its good effect of refining your faith and bringing you, maturing you through that trial. That's what God wants to do. What we want to do is bail out of the trial. You know, we want to just bail out. We can, I can remember one time I was going through a trial and I didn't have any idea how I was going to get through it. It was really discouraging to me. And I actually thought about different ways that I could escape this. And one of those ways was suicide. I actually thought that in my mind. I was kind of envisioning what it would be like to be riding my motorcycle down the highway and just run into an embankment. Now, that was before I had a motorcycle, actually. I guess I was going to drive my car. But you see how stupid that is? That's not the wisdom of God. That's the folly of man. And what God wants to do is to give you wisdom so that, the, so that you can see what God's wisdom is in this situation. What, am I, what, I, what does God... What provision has God made for me in this situation? And you know how trials are. Some trials are those kind of things that you have no solution for this. And you're thinking, God, please give me a solution. Please give me a solution. And God says, I don't want to give you a solution. I want to give you my wisdom. You know, like somebody's really making life miserable for you. He's not going to tell you how to get rid of the person. He's going to tell you how to walk in wisdom in that situation. And so if we want to grow, you're going to have trials. That's just a given. It's a part of the revelation of the New Testament that God allows trials to come into your life. He causes trials to come into your life as the sovereign God of the universe. I know we'd like to believe, you know, God never does anything. He never does choose to do anything that would be hurtful to us. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he allows trials in our life because he wants to use them to bring you to real maturity in Christ. Now, it's okay if you want to, you know, Job, remember what Job did when his, when his friends were giving him all this wisdom? And his wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? And you'll have people like that if when you start telling them, you're going to be faithful to the Lord no matter what. And they say, you're crazy. What you need is this, and it's some sinful thing. This will be the answer to your dilemma. And God says, no, you're my child, and I want to give you wisdom. Unite your heart. Be one-souled about me, and ask, and I'll give it to you. That's what he has promised us. How many of you are facing a trial right now, just out of curiosity. Okay. <laughs> it's almost unanimous, huh? Yeah, we, and guess what? God has wisdom for you. Have you asked him? Have you actually asked him? Give me wisdom. I need your wisdom. 
so that I can apply it to this situation and this part of my life. And, you know, his answer is never get rid of that, um, that person who's driving you crazy. I'm so glad of that. I got to tell you, I'm really glad of that because I think about my wife asking God to give her a solution to her trial. I, if he were to say, well, just shoot him in the head and that'd be it. And you, your troubles would be over. That's not what he does. Instead, he tells us how to live wisely, how to live out the wisdom of God, even in the most difficult of relationships. He wants to display his power and his glory through the lives of believers. He wants to show his wisdom in your life as you respond in faith. That's what he's doing. I want to have you stand uh, Can we do one more song? Okay, we're going to sing, The Blood Shall Never Lose Its Power. Let me tell you what this means. We don't think that there's something magical about the blood of Jesus. We don't think it was of a different chemical makeup. We believe that what the blood is, is it is a picture of the violent death of God under judgment in my place. So it will never lose its power means what Christ has done is going to save you for eternity when you believe on him. He'll save you for eternity, for time and eternity. So we're going to sing this in closing. Let me pray for you first. Our Father, we thank you so much for your wisdom. We thank you for your promise of wisdom in our lives when we face difficulties and trials. And so I pray this week that all of us would have opportunity, Father, to turn to you and say, Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. Please give me wisdom. And then to discover that he's opened your heart to it and to rejoice in it. God, I pray that you do that for all of us this week. In Christ's name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.